Hello, dear listeners. This is Michelle Bonzek here with Might I Suggest. I want to uh, quickly apologize because life got a little bit in the way of podcasting, seeing as this is my hobby and not something that I get paid for. It had to take a back burner to the things that actually pay my bills. So that means that we're a week behind. However, I believe that it's worth the wait. So the last episode that we posted was with the lovely and talented Lynn Wilcott. And we talked about Swampophilia by the Indigo Girls. And now we're going to pick up where we left off, which is Still Life with Woodpecker. And that will be followed by the Red Violin. I hope you enjoy. For our second piece of artwork, we have Still Life with Woodpecker. It is Tom Robbins' third published novel, and it came out in 1980. It's described as a postmodern fairy tale, and at its core, it is a princess in exile who falls in love with a social activist bomber. Mm-hmm. It's a feel-good piece. Yeah. Starting our ads. <laughs> <laughs> so you are very smart and very well read. What about this book? Mm. So Still Life is not the first book by Tom Robbins that I have read. Um, I read even Cowgirls Get the Blues first. At the time, there was a movie with Uma Thurman uh, that was based on it, which is not great in my opinion, but it's all right. <laughs> And, uh, and then Jitterbug Perfume, which is also a fantastic book, if anyone hasn't read it. And then this one came into my life, and it just it hit me like a ton of bricks, and it was everything that I wanted. I am not a, uh, I'm not a romance person, uh, <laughs> not a traditional Michelle's giggling, because, yeah, you're, she's, uh, yeah, because <laughs> uh, I'm not. But this is the type of romance that... I would enjoy. I enjoyed it when I first read it, and I still enjoy it today, even though it's absolutely not realistic. Oh, this and, story is friggin' bonkers. Yeah, no, it's absolutely bonkers. <laughs> but also, what I really enjoy about the story, apart from the actual plot line, is the fact that Robbins himself interjects what he's thinking throughout the entire story. Yeah. And he becomes a character in it about... You know, the fact that he has bought a new typewriter to specifically for this book yeah. and then realizes over the course of time that this typewriter is not going to explain it. And, you know, later on in the book, he's like, I painted the sucker red because I don't know what else to do, you know, and the fact that he keeps interjecting almost the difficulty that he's having finishing the story is fascinating mm-hmm. um, because the story itself is super bonkers yes and uh and but also the characters while broadly drawn are really specific yes um you know, all the ancillary characters like Leishery's parents you know the secret service guy who's monitoring them the whole time yeah you know the the rest of the gang uh that wrangle is with when mm-hmm. he tells his backstory whom some of them are also in even cowgirls get the blues oh cool um and you know, just the, 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 the other prince that shows up, the dog, like, uh, Giulietta, who's their servant, everyone. And future queen. And, few, spoiler alert. <laughs> the book came out the year I was born. I know. <laughs> the book is, like, almost 40 years old. Um, but, um, <laughs> but, yeah, and, like, the fact that all of these broadly drawn characters are 
so very specific and fascinating. Ralph Nader shows up in this book. Or well, his voice shows up in the book. He himself um, does not. Of course it does. <laughs> Lee Shuri loves him. Right? It's why she went she in had, the first which place. Which is why she went to Hawaii in the first place. Because her ultimate crush, Ralph Nader, was speaking at this thing called the Care Fest. Um, <laughs> which, like, the whole, like, another thing that I really enjoy about this book is it makes fun of people's belief systems and how they fall apart. Specifically, like, with the Care Fest, which is this very idealistic but incredibly poorly planned it's convention a, in the Hawaii. fire it's, fest of what is the, the, the fire fest um no, no what was the name of it the um yeah it was the fire okay fest. Yeah, yeah yeah um so it, it's basically you know these people who mean very well who want to save the earth invited every single person who had an opinion to show up and speak at this convention. Yes. And all these people with these very, very tightly held beliefs end up clashing with each other, and it turns into a fucking nightmare. Right. And it's fantastic. Like, there's this one, like, little scene where, like, you know, there's a shaman who's trying to, like, conjure up a ball to calm people down, and he ends up getting punched out or something like that. <laughs> um, you know, it ends up in a big fight, and, and by that time, uh, Leishery has has left the fest and, and, and is... Uh, quickly falling in love with this uh, crazy ass redheaded bomber with terrible teeth. You know, it goes on further with Leishri's beliefs. The the fact that she really does want to save the earth and, and being an exiled princess at one point, she wants to get all of the other royalty who have nothing to do except just be a playboy or a model or whatever yeah. and have them actually come together with their combined star power to do good for the earth and then you think about you know our current british royals and our current royal in exile and how they have dedicated themselves to lives of service yes in in defiance of their traditions they're not just you know you know showing up and cracking bottles over ships or just kind of walk kind of talking the talk like you know they've served in the military they've started charities they run things they are active in the communities and it's a different face, but at, in this book, she is laughed at for being self-centered and vain and shallow right. for wanting to do good, which is what she believes in. So, you know, her beliefs get tested and they, they do change slightly, not much. Uh, Wrangle's beliefs get tested um, over the course of the book, and it's hard for him to reconcile his need for anarchy <laughs> which is almost uh, an addiction, really. Yeah. You know, he's not doing it for fun. He's doing it because it's what he's supposed to do. He yes. he bombs things. Well, yes, yeah. but he also, he cares more about the bomb than he does the thing. Yes. Which is why he's he gets drunk and... And, and bombs, bombs the wrong convention. The wrong, right. <laughs> so, like, instead of hitting the care fest, he, like, oops takes out a UFO, UFO convention. convention. <laughs> so like all these people who believe in aliens are like, Oh shit. Yep. Uh, which is, which is hilarious, <laughs> you know, and it goes further along and, and, uh, and you know, then there comes the point where Leishree finds out that Wrangle did bomb something mm -hmm. and she has just fallen in love with him, but she, puts him under arrest and sends him to jail. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. because her beliefs tell her to do that. But then she pines <laughs> for him in his attic the yeah. whole time. Yeah. So she makes, like, she recreates 
uh, her room in the attic to be this like the same as his jail as cell, jail cell. Mm-hmm. and is like held up in there. Yep. And he writes her, he's like, you crazy, what are you yeah. doing? Well, because it, it turns out that, you know, like, again, because she's a princess and the publicity machine fires up and, like, this, you know, formerly self-centered princess has now locked herself in an attic and, uh, and saying she's doing it for love. And it creates this entire culture of wannabes who are locking themselves up in their own attic, regardless of if their partner is... In, in the military somewhere, or if they're in jail, yeah. or, like, or it's just one of them, like, they're having a fight, so sh- this woman locks herself in the attic for her husband. Right. <laughs> um, and it reminds me of those bridges that people put the locks on. Yep. Um, which is the dumbest goddamn thing in the world, and if you do it, you're a fucking idiot. Oh, hot takes for Yep. Not only are you <laughs> destroying a potentially historical bridge in Paris... Nobody gives a shit if you're locking up your love somewhere. Like, lock it up between the two of you. Um, and not... How many people do you think have cheated on their significant other, like, within a week's time of putting that lock on? Like, 25 yep. to 75%. <laughs> um, like, <laughs> if you need a lock and key thrown into a river to prove you love somebody... There is something seriously wrong. Just tell them you love them. Don't destroy property because you're so fucking narcissistic that you have to show it on a fucking lock on a bridge. Anyway. (laughs) Which brings me to my favorite quote in the book. (laughs) I very rarely see you get that riled up. Oh, I can't stand it. Oh, you just got. Oh, the bridge, man. I can't. I had um, no idea that you felt this strongly about locks on bridges. I really do. It's so dumb. If it and if it and if it kept itself to Paris, that would be one thing. But like the bridge over the Mass Ave, a bridge on Mass Ave <laughs> over the Mass Pike, is that really so historic and important? You got to lock your love up on it because there's like fifty locks on that dumbass bridge. <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea of like. I love you, but not enough to go to Paris. Right? I love you, so but... So we're just going to do it but, here. But just in front of Berkeley. Like, that's it. Uh, <laughs> like, just for this semester. <laughs> it's so stupid. <laughs> Nothing says I love you like putting a lock on a bridge while staring at Roman board. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the really great... While watching... Uh, like, furniture while, store I can't afford. Yeah, while watching, like, the cars go by on Storo Drive or, yeah. or the Mass Pike. Like, come on, man. Shut and stop. Just stop. Just tell them you love them and prove it every day. You don't need to prove it with a lock on a bridge. (laughs) (laughs) Touche. Indeed. So, yeah. uh, And it does relate directly to something in the book, which is my absolute favorite passage in it, which is Bernard is in jail and uh, Lishri is uh, is locked up in her in her uh, love cave. And um, oh, love cave sounds. <laughs> that's like that's. I, I want love cave to be like John and Egret, not <laughs> poor Lisherie. Yeah, hanging out by herself. So um, so yeah, so um, so Lisherie and 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 Wrangler are, are speaking through uh, Wrangler's attorney, and um, she sends him a message. Basically, uh, you know, if if the if the moon is impermanent, um, you know, the the most important thing is love. Um, there's no point, there's no point in saving the world if it means losing the moon. So it's her kind of crumbling of her beliefs and realizing that 
loving this person is more important than trying to save the world. Mm -hmm. Um, Because... What's the point of saving the world if that person's not with me? Exactly. And so Bernard sends her a message back. So she reads it. And uh, this was what he replied back to her. Love is the ultimate outlaw. It just won't adhere to any rules. The most any of us can do is to sign on as its accomplice. Instead of vowing to honor and obey, maybe we should swear to aid and abet. That would mean that security is out of the question. The words make and stay become inappropriate. My love for you has no strings attached. I love you for free. And that is the most wonderful thing I've ever read in my entire life. Just the fact that loving someone doesn't have to mean you lock them down. It like you choosing to love them. Yeah. Not because you have to or you feel an obligation or you need to hold on to it so tightly. The love bond that you have is so strong. It doesn't have to have any complications or strings or codified rules. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to lock it up on a bridge. Yep. It exists between the two of you. And that is what's most important. Mm -hmm. Like if you love somebody, then it doesn't matter. Like there's a, there's another little part in this book of like, uh, the, the philosophical question, philosophical question, how do you make love stay? And it's hilarious. It's like buy it a junior's cheesecake or like, it's just, it's absolutely funny. I mean, to be fair, if, I mean, it's, if somebody bought me a junior's cheesecake, I would definitely stick around for a well, while. Well, yeah. And then like, you know, <laughs> you talk about like, you know, people's love languages, like, you mm-hmm. know, like what, what's your love? Is it an act of service? Is it food? Is it, you know, like, and uh, yeah, like, yeah, my, my love language is, you know, Chinese food. Yeah. Always. Absolutely. Always. <laughs> Like, the greatest things in my life would be, like, there's noodles here. Thank you. I love you. <laughs> there's um, there's really funny uh, meme that I saw earlier this week that was, like, the love languages. And it's, like, acts of service. I bought you a taco. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, gifts. Yeah. Here's, Here's your taco. taco. <laughs> Quality time. Let's get tacos. <laughs> and so, like, yep. they're all taco-based. Yeah. And I'm, like, oh, all of that is me. Right? Seriously. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, buy me fried rice and tell me I'm pretty. Like, that's pretty much it. Like, <laughs> I want that cross-stitch on a pillow. Oh, good. That's amazing. So that section of the book I know is very important to you. Yes. It also is really special to me, partly because my friends Josh and Rissa used it in their wedding vows. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, I think, uh, have similar views on love to you mm-hmm. and not to me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the idea that they found each other and are so perfect together. And um, they are the embodiment for me of aiding and embedding mm-hmm. um, in, in not uh, obeying each yeah. other. You know, uh, this isn't like a, a subservient situation. Mm-hmm. They are both strong and powerful people on their own mm-hmm. who are better together. Yeah. And it's just the, again, it's the concept of uh, not letting somebody else dictate what you should and shouldn't do in love. Mm-hmm. The fact that you are, you have signed on, you have decided and you're continuing to decide every day mm-hmm. um, that it's in your power to love and not someone else's to take away from you. Right. You know, not some... Not a church, not not a judge, not anyone. Like, if you love somebody and and you sign on for that, you are mm-hmm. going to protect it because that's what you want, not what somebody else has told you you want. Mm-hmm. Well, and like that passage makes me think about 
my parents are still together mm-hmm. and they've been together for a bajillion years it seems and sometimes when when my mom's feeling a little sassy and I ask <laughs> her about it she's like we just didn't give up at the same time mm-hmm. you know because like they had times when it was not great mm-hmm. you know and yeah and I was their child, so I'm sure I didn't even see how bad sometimes things mm-hmm. were, you know? Yeah. You shield, you know, the people you love from mm-hmm. bad stuff, but they just didn't quit on each other mm-hmm. the same day. Yeah. Because yeah. every day is a choice, mm-hmm. and you are choosing to actively love mm-hmm. and uh, deciding to fight for each other every day. Mm-hmm. And some days, it's a fucking war zone. Yeah. And other days, like... And some days you take a day off. Yeah. And you're like, you know what? I'm going to love you tomorrow. But right. today I don't like you so much. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. But if you've signed on and like, and that's, you know, like you don't, you don't bail. Right. Like you don't just say, you know, I mean, obviously there are certain, you know, there are untenable situations in relationships where absolutely bailing is the right thing to do, where love is not going to fix it. Right. Um, this is, you both are loving each other in a good and yes. healthy way and are choosing because even if you are a great match, mm-hmm. there's still some shit. Mm-hmm. Always. Yeah. You're not the same person. Mm-hmm. Even if you are very compatible. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to fight over some stuff. Mm-hmm. But the idea of like fighting fair mm-hmm. and choosing to work it out. Right. I think is really important and yeah. beautiful. Indeed. What is your favorite part of this book? My favorite part of this book is one of Robbins's interludes when I mentioned earlier when he's talking about um, he's picked this typewriter to write this story and he doesn't think it's up to the job and he starts describing the other types of typewriters that might be suited to this task um, and it's a really really wonderful interlude uh, where he's just he starts spouting off all of these different types of typewriters like one hewn from a solid block of cypress or someone one that's dyed with berries and um so he expounds on language a little bit and then he goes on which with this hilarious paragraph or two about i believe it's a pilot who uh crash lands in japan in world war ii and dies and the village who uh who finds him decides that he can't be buried in vain, but they have no idea how to properly honor this this person who has mm-hmm. died. So they're, you know, but they but they really, really want to to honor him properly. Finally one of the villagers comes in with a copy of Finnegan's Wake. Yep. Um <laughs> yeah. and he describes he's like, now imagine these yeah. poor villagers yeah. drunk as hell. <laughs> So it says, um, if you can picture those remote 1945 Japanese peasants earnestly trying to hold a drunken Irish wake complicated by the experimental wordplay of James Joyce, you can picture the relationship between an author, his typewriter, and that reality to whose recreation he's obliged to apply the Southpaw touch, even though he knows only too well the function Arabs and Hindus assign to the left hand. I'm not go- I'm not so far gone that I expect technologists to be interested in designing machines for artists. Why, if novelists got wooden typewriters, poets would demand that theirs be ice. <laughs> what is more likely is that technology will bypass artists 
that a day is coming when our novels will be written by computers, the same devices that will paint our murals and compose our tunes. If I'm chuckling, it's because I'm imagining a computer programmed to produce logical variations on 18 possible literary plots. I'm imagining that computer trying to deal with what happened in Le Cherie's attic. If I am chuckling, it means that the Remington SL3 had better watch its P's and Q's. <laughs> I love that. And it is, and it's so prescient because we have Watson now and we have artificial mm-hmm. intelligence and we are, yes. if not there, we are just about there. You know, there are uh, there are computers making medical diagnoses from yes. because they have a vast knowledge of all of the medical literature and their AI has been programmed to diagnose your disease from your symptoms, not WebMD style. Please don't don't diagnose from WebMD. Go see a doctor. <laughs> um, for real, see a doctor. Um, uh, <laughs> but yeah, and, and, you know, the fact that, um, you know, music is being composed on computers yes. and, uh, you know, everything is, is, you know, our, in 1980, it's, it's so very prescient that today it's, it's just a common it's a given. part of life yeah. that you can't like, nobody just picks up a guitar and, and writes a song and becomes famous. There's always technology to help you, whether it's somebody recording you on the phone, if you're playing in the street or you've got something up on YouTube or you, you know, meet up with a friend who gives you a sick beat and then you put it up on SoundCloud yep. or, you know, that's where it is. It's no longer typewriters and handwritten notes and, you know, technology is where everything happens. Yeah. But yeah. Um, but that passion is also, uh, 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 a friend of mine uh, had passed away and this was also one of his favorite books and um, for his uh, memorial service I did read that particular passage um, because uh, he was a he was a just a, an incredibly funny and giving and wonderful human and I had decided I'm like you know what this is something that if, if he, wherever he is, I hope that he is watching and laughing his ass off because he loved that passage and he loved that book. And our group of friends were so very close to that Finnegan's Wake at some point, at points in time, um, <laughs> that, uh, that uh, it was, it was, you know, it was a, it was a welcome moment of levity to something that is a celebration, but also very sad. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, so it's it's just it it resonates with me and i think just think it's a wonderful little snippet in the book that's awesome so i was really excited that you chose this book to share with everyone because you shared this book with me at a time that i really desperately needed it Mm -hmm. so i had uh been doing my master's it was a a really rough time towards the end of my classes my last three classes they were really reading intensive and my aunt leslie was dying Mm -hmm. and so the culmination of it all i just was like cool i'm a hot fucking mess (laughs) and what the result was is that after i graduated and finished my program i couldn't bring myself to read books for pleasure anymore Mm -hmm. i was still teaching so i still had to read for for work all the time but whatever I was trying to read, it just wasn't, I couldn't get into a book again. Mm -hmm. And 
I don't even know why you gave it to me that day, but you were like, I think you should read this book. I think you're going to really like it. It's weird, but it's a romance. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And it brought me back to reading. Mm -hmm. And so I will always have a very special place in my heart for this uh, book. That means so much. I, I didn't know. Uh, listeners, if you didn't know, Michelle is a voracious reader. If you go into her house, there's an entire room filled with books. And it's not the only one. Um, <laughs> no, but I have two other bookshelves in I another know. room. Yep. Um, oh, so, three. <laughs> <laughs> so Michelle's a reader. And the fact that she did not, couldn't, couldn't read for a while is really disheartening because reading uh, gives her so much pleasure and gives her so much education and enlightenment and uh, steadiness. And uh, I look up to Michelle and Aww. value value her book recommendations because she knows her stuff. And uh, I'm 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 really humbled and glad that I could kick you in the booty. Yeah, this book and got is... you back on track. Well, and it's just it's a really fun weird read mm -hmm. and and it's an easy read yep <laughs> yeah it's 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 in plain language it's like it's yeah not taxing it, right it's just as a, a delight mm -hmm. and the interludes are really fun and they weirdly ground the book mm -hmm. because yeah, they it's keep him it from flying off the handle yeah. <laughs> yeah i almost feel like it's like the the chorus of a song yes where it brings you back together so you don't go super crazy mm -hmm. town yep in your you know mm -hmm. and so the rest of the book the, the the fairy tale part of it is you know the the verses of the song where it explores the reasoning mm -hmm. why and what's going on but then it comes back and brings you home to like this is a book you're reading this is a fairy tale mm -hmm. you know and it just yeah i really really love this book a lot and when i was younger i smoked camel lights so the fact that the, the camel lights figure so heavily yeah. in the book, it was also a delight for yeah, me. Yeah, a pack of camel cigarettes is is an actual character yeah. in the book. You know, <laughs> it's true. And you get to hear the camel pack's backstory, yeah. which I think is fascinating as well. I mean, it's complete fiction, but it's or is it? But yeah, no one's ever no asked one, it. Yep. No one, no one's, no one's ever gone to the pack of camels and be like, "Yo, what's your story, man?" But yeah, and you know, it's the it's all those things and and. Uh, you know, the fact that objects are given as much importance as people. It's uh, it's just, it's so fun. And it's yes. so weird. And um, and I frequently come back to this book and read it a lot. Just because it's one of those, like, if I'm if I'm feeling a little bit um, out of sorts, um, it tends to ground me. Because it's familiar. Yeah. It's and, home. And it's home. And I just enjoy every single page of it. Yeah. One of the things that I love the most about literature and why I read as much as I do and why this book is so special because it brought that back to me is that I think that I read because I want to experience lives I can't live. Mm -hmm. And so I talk to my students a lot about how one of the best ways to grow empathy is to read books mm -hmm. and find out about other people's lives yeah. and their thoughts and feelings and opinions on things. Mm -hmm. And even something as very silly as a princess uh, agreeing to marry a prince as long as he builds her a pyramid <laughs> and then getting locked in that pyramid mm -hmm. and sealed in mm -hmm. with her actual love yep and um, a giant ass wedding cake yeah and they're like it's cool we'll hang here with cake yeah um <laughs> i'm I, uh so they're locked in the pyramid with wedding cake and a whole bunch of champagne yeah. so they get drunk and eat cake 
which to me sounds like a great diet party. Uh, But yeah, and you know, they're talking about how, uh, is it Wordsworth? Who, when he first tasted champagne, he says, I'm drinking stars. Um, And then (laughs) at one point, Leisurely has to pee in the corner and she goes, I'm peeing stars. (laughs) (laughs) And I just find that so cute. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) I had forgotten that part of it. That's wonderful. Um, well, yeah, I mean, who cares about empathy? I'm, which is where I was going with uh, reading a lot. Mm-hmm. Let's let's end this with talking about peeing stars. <laughs> talking about peeing stars. Yeah, yeah, awesome. <laughs> For our last piece, we have the 1999 film *The Red Violin* by Francis uh, Francois Girard, and the composer was uh, John Corgliano who won an Oscar for the film score of the, of the movie. And it's the story of uh, a violin through decades and centuries even. Mm-hmm. And it's a really beautiful and so sad story. Why did you pick it? Let's get into it. Okay, uh, I picked this film uh, for multiple reasons. The first one being I really enjoy stories told from multiple points of view and often are unreliable narrators um, where you're not quite sure what the true story is behind it. So this sto- uh, this movie is told primarily in simultaneous flash forward and flashback. Yes. The flash forward part is um, a, a woman who is about to have a baby gets her tarot cards read mm-hmm. and the woman is, uh, the tarot card reader is telling the story through the cards of what, of what the future will hold hold for them um and then at the same time the modern day is there is this violin that is up for auction which is purported to be the infamous red violin which is a very rare perfect piece and throughout history it has been in possession of multiple people and so it tells the story of this violin's travels and the people that possessed it and how their lives were changed from the time they received it to the time that it left them. Yeah. Either purposefully or non-purposefully. And, uh, and the legacy that this violin leaves behind because all of the people who possessed it in the past are now represented by their grandchildren or their, um, or, you know, in, in one case, the monks who ran the orphanage that the child prodigy yes. first possessed the violin. The folks who hid the violin during political unrest yeah. um, and wanted to bring it back to bring culture back to their former communist society, communist China specifically, and how everyone has a claim to say that this violin is in our possession. But also Samuel L. Jackson is in this film playing, yeah. playing the person who is currently in possession of the violin, but who is about to give it up for auction. He is um, a music historian, and he believes that he's found it. So he 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 is delivering it to be sold off to the highest bidder, mm-hmm. uh, which has not happened to this violin before. Right throughout history, this and this violin is present day this is present in day. Canada, and it's going up for auction yep. for the first time. Mm-hmm. And so the stories that are weaved in and out from, you know, from the the first possession of this violin, other than from the violin maker, which is this small child um, who is a child prodigy and an orphan and finds comfort in the violin, but also is kind of destroyed by 
his genius and per- and perfection on the violin, right. and which ultimately costs him his life as he is about to play his first recital as a child. Um, so the rest of the world never got to see the beauty of this child's performance, right. and the violin is buried with him. And then it, his grave gets robbed by Roma, who take the violin across Europe as they travel, and mm-hmm. so it's possessed by multiple people. And the vi- and you know you can hear the music get better as yes. time goes on, and then it falls into the possession of the devil, who is this rock star violinist played by Jason Fleming, who is dirty handsome. <laughs> I mean, he is he is the worst human, but. Boy, he's so pretty. Yeah. Um, and he's he, like, hook up with, but don't tell anybody. Yes. Yeah. He's, he's, he's the dirty little secret. Um, <laughs> but he is in a love affair with a writer played by Greta Scacchi. And the two of them are both competing with their passions, but also together they are a, a combustible force of energy. Um, and so, uh, but the violin eventually kind of possesses him more. And there's this really great performance um, the scene in the film where he's doing a violin solo and it is so, you can almost see the pheromones coming off of his body <laughs> and affecting every woman and a good portion of the men in the audience. Yep. And it is literally, that scene is just the violin and him breathing. And at some point he's panting and it's, so sensual and so overt and when he's done he's sweaty and he's spent and the whole audience is like (gasps) everyone's lighting up cigarettes literally yeah (laughs) um it's so it's fantastic um but of course uh at that point uh uh his lover has uh left to pursue her writing passions um so he's all alone and she comes back to find him in the arms of the roma woman that he got the who had given him, who had the, given violin. him the violin in the first place, so she shoots him, doesn't hit him, hits, hits the, the violin, violin. Um, and damages it and leaves, and uh, she eventually finds success once she's left him. Um, mm-hmm. She finds better success as a writer. He falls into absolute despair mm-hmm. because not only is his love gone his love violin is gone mm-hmm. and he's lost everything and he just dies in anguish and leaves everything to her and leaves everything to her um, except the violin which further travels one of his servants goes home mm-hmm. to uh, Shanghai yep and brings it with him mm-hmm. uh, which is the next one which is pro- probably my f- my favorite part of the film which is basically in communist China they are trying to return back to their traditional values so everything western is in the process of being destroyed yes. and this family and this young woman is kind of a spy um she is in the she's in the army youth um she is talking the talk but at yeah. the same time she is protecting not only her but also her child <laughs> and the violin which she knows is very special right. and knows the value of music outside of just what the government is saying is proper music. And, um, and, uh, it, it also, and of course it ends in tragedy again, um, with, um, 
Yeah, so uh, the police officer gives the violin mm-hmm. to a mu- the mu- a music teacher yes. that she knows. Yes. Um, to keep it safe mm-hmm. because they had raided um, the police officer's house yes. or they were going to. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, like, they didn't find anything because mm-hmm. the violin was with the music yeah. teacher by that point. Yeah. But it ends, this portion ends with the music teacher being dead mm-hmm. and found with all of her, these instruments. With dozens and dozens of instruments that he's kept safe like his children mm-hmm. hidden away with sheet music and all of these things that you know eventually you know you think about classical musicians and how asia is such a fertile place for classical music mm-hmm. now and how many musicians are you know if i mean i'm sure like it's just it's it's un it's unfathomable that um that someone's nationalism would preclude beauty. Right. And but it's it is stated over and over again that this yeah. of course is what happens. Yeah. Um quick question. Yes. Do, is the violin fixed? Uh yes, he, the 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 violin is repaired uh when it gets to Shanghai. Okay. Yeah. Cool. But it still has the scars. Right. Yeah. And so uh so after after Shanghai uh, yeah, so after Shanghai, it is sent to, all of the instruments are sent to Montreal to be auctioned yes. off. yep. And that's where we pick up the present day again mm-hmm. with... With Samuel Jackson. Yep. Who, again, doesn't swear once in this film. No. It's lovely. <laughs> Pre-get those motherfucking snakes out this motherfucking place. <laughs> so the violin itself goes through a series of tests to oh. prove its authenticity. By this point, you really believe that this violin is a living, breathing thing. And it is hooked up to a machine and given very loud vibrations Mm -hmm. that shake it and it makes a very unnatural sound. And after you've been listening to this violin being played beautifully over and over again, literally your heart goes out and be like, don't hurt the baby. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever you don't protect the violin at all costs. Um, And so, so, it gets to the actual auction, and um, not only do you find out, uh, I won't, this at this point, I will not spoil anything for you, but not only do you find out the true nature of the violin and Ugh. why it is so entirely special, but all of the folks who were part of the story, their legacy is all, they all wish to possess the violin because it will heal some part of them. All except for one person who is named Poussin, which I believe is the French word for chicken. He is a very famous violinist. Um, he uh, And he wants to possess it to be part of his vast collection. He doesn't necessarily want to play it. He, doesn't, he actually gets a test drive of the violin before um, the auction and he kind of dismisses uh-huh. it. Out of all of these people who want this violin... He is the abs. He is the villain. Like, yep. if anyone is gonna like the fact that this violin is being bought at an auction, like, like it's just it's it's a terrible way for this violin to end up. And the fact that you know all the people have very valid reasons, mm-hmm. but you oh in your heart you're just like oh is this motherfucker gonna take it? Is this oh does he? And again, I will not spoil it because the auction scene is absolutely riveting and Colin Fiore plays the auctioneer. Um, he's a very wonderful actor who's been in a bunch of Shakespearean stuff. 
and just the auction itself is is riveting and fascinating and it resolves so interestingly and then i love the last portion of this yes the la- the the last scene of the film is absolutely beautiful and it serves the story absolutely beautifully and um, again you will need to watch the film because i refuse to spoil it for you i am very glad that we're not sharing the ending and then the um the reveal of the full origins mm-hmm. of this of the violin mm-hmm. itself but i'm also a little bit sad because i desperately want to talk about them mm-hmm. yeah. um so we'll do that off podcastness yep. Yep. but it is a beautifully woven story mm-hmm. that goes through centuries of time yeah. but is so connected mm-hmm. through this like you said living piece of art yeah and it's you know it's again the uh, like the the concept of uh the power of music to move people you and i are both very much music lovers yes. uh music dictates our pretty much our every waking moment yeah it is music is not just something you passively listen to it's something that you're active in whether it's uh if you play an instrument or if you sing or if you go see live music or if you you know listen to music on a stereo or watch videos or whatever you feel music is is in everyone's heartbeat uh you may you may even if you're not talented music exists and some of my most wonderful times are with my friends who cannot sing a note but boy do they love experiencing music yeah and even if it's terrible even if you think you can't sing a note you can and you should yeah. because music should be absolutely everywhere. I agree. Mm-hmm. Oh, and also as a as an aside about like the actual film, um, the violin itself, uh, all of the music uh, in the in the movie, uh, the violinist is Joshua Bell, mm-hmm. um, whom uh, if if you are a classical music lover, he's a he's a wonderful violinist. But if you are a um, uh, a YouTube video watcher, um, there was a viral video of uh, a young man busking and playing a violin in a Washington, D.C. train station. Uh-huh. Um, and he played for hours and hours, and nobody really knew who he was. And then somebody finally went, are you Joshua Bell? And he's like, yeah. This man who has won multiple Grammys, Oscars. Like, I love I, yeah. that. And he just wanted to play in a train station and make people happy. And somebody videotaped, uh, you know, somebody taped it. And as, like, you never know who is going to be, a, a famous person. Can you imagine like walking through like a tea station and like Yo-Yo Ma's just like hanging out playing a, playing a cello. <laughs> and nobody's noticing. And that nobody it's knows him. that it's, yeah. yeah. It's fascinating. I love that. So. Awesome. Thank you so mm-hmm. much. Yes. Um, and thank you for sharing all of these three. They're really beautiful and special and very much you. <laughs> um, awesome. Thank Yay, you. Yay. Thank you. So we've now come to the part of the podcast where I suggest things back to you based on the wonderful things that you brought to us. I'm very excited about this. You, This was incredibly hard. Uh, I always think that this is one of the more difficult pieces uh, of the podcast for me because I really take pride when I give recommendations or gifts or suggestions about things to people. And so I want to make sure I really get it right for people and especially the music part was so difficult because we share so much musically mm-hmm. together that I was like, oh, fuck me. I've already shared all of the things <laughs> except like, this one. Oh. Maybe I have and I just have, I don't know, blocked out. But my suggestion musically to you are the Weepies. Okay. I have no idea who they are. So it is a duo that mm-hmm. met 
actually at Club Basim in Cambridge. Oh, very nice. Um, in 2001. And became um, an indie folk duo. They are now married and I believe have a family. Mm-hmm. Their first album, Happiness, came out in 03. And then in 05, the album Say I Am You came out. And probably their most favorite, famous song is from that album. It's called The World Spins Madly On. Mm-hmm. It is one of my favorite songs on the planet. It opens with the lyrics, Woke up and wished that I was dead. With an aching in my head, I lay motionless in bed. I thought of you and where you'd gone and let the world spin madly on. Mm. They sing beautiful harmonies together Mm. and their lyrics are really lovely. And the world spins madly on is a quote from a book, is it not? Oh, I don't know. Okay. I believe it is, but I I don't think you're lying. Okay. I, I could be making a show up, but... <laughs> I will try and do yeah. some more research. Indeed. But so that is my musical recommendation to Excellent. you. Excellent. I will look them up. My book recommendation to you... <gasps> ...is The Decameron. Okay. It is by Giovanni Botticello. I, 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 that's not how you say it. Um, who lived from 1313 to 1375 mm-hmm. in Italy mm-hmm. and it is a hundred stories a hundred short stories and the frame of the text is seven women and three men go to a villa outside of Florence Italy to try and avoid the black death okay but then they're just stuck there yeah and so they decide each of the 10 days that they're there will have a theme Mm-hmm. And they each tell stories. Ooh. And so each day is a different theme, a different set of stories, mm-hmm. and a different kind of like person in charge of the stories. Yeah. And some of them are funny, and some of them are tragic, and some of them are um, very sexy. And the connectiveness of the people in the villa holds the story together. Mm-hmm. And it just is a really interesting that read. Sounds- fascinating i think i think you'll very much dig it Mm -hmm. it's similar a little bit to the canterbury tales with Mm -hmm. the different storytelling and uh the different points of view and also this kind of like overarching frame Uh um (laughs) of like everyone's dying of diseases (laughs) um yeah the world is coming to end so let's tell stories yeah and last but certainly not least my third offering to you is a film it is the 1992 film Orlando. Okay. Have you seen it? Um, I've seen parts of it, but I haven't seen the whole thing. But I know I am going to love it because it's Tilda Swinton. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So it is loosely based on Virginia Woolf's 1928 novel Orlando. Mm-hmm. Tilda Swinton plays the title character. The film is written and directed by Sally Potter. And the premise of the story is that... Tilda Swinton is gifted all of the wealth of an estate Mm -hmm. as long as it is promised that she never gets old. Okay. So the story spans over 400 years. Mm -hmm. And actually throughout that time, the main character changes genders multiple times. Mm -hmm. The original character is male, um, but very androgynous at times 
is female identifying and Queen Elizabeth gifts this castle and land Mm -hmm. to Orlando in 1603 Mm -hmm. by saying do not fade do not wither do not grow old Mm -hmm. and so for the next 400 years so it's a gift that's couched around a kind of a curse maybe 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 yes well you know it's it's one of those like if you're immortal, right? What do you have to live for? Exactly. <laughs> um, which Tilda Swinton does this in more than one movie. Yeah. But this one is really beautiful because not only does the story, the reason I picked it for you specifically is that not only does it tell the story over centuries, which is a connection with Red Violin, but the costuming is beautiful oh, and the sure acting is. is divine. And well, it's Tilda Swinton, of course it is. Correct. <laughs> it also has Billy Zane and uh, Quentin Crisp actually plays really Queen Elizabeth. <gasps> no, sir. Yes, sir. <gasps> That's and amazing. Is fantastic. <laughs> and so it just is really a gorgeously woven together story. Mm-hmm. And nice. I think you'll really like it. I think I will too. Thanks, Boo. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was so much fun. Yay. And I hope you all enjoyed listening to us babble for a million years. Not a million. <laughs> just two hours. <laughs> Thank you so much. I love you. I love you. And that's our episode, friends. I hope that you liked it. And in the links, I will put where you can find all three of my recommendations. And I want to give a special thanks, as always, to... Lisa Cordner, who not only is going to be our guest next week, but also did the amazing cover art for the podcast. And then I'd also like to thank Kate Hardy for her incredible sound engineering on the theme song track that has its underlay from Senior Moth. Thanks so much, everybody. See you soon.